Thanks, guys. Great song, Justin. Great, great tune. Um, if you're a warehouse kid, you'll probably know who you are because you're probably about this tall or less. Um, you are released. Or if you're a parent, if it's your first time here, it's a great time. Go up right there in the lobby and connect with the warehouse kids folks and turn them loose. Well, first of all, if we haven't met, um, someone uh, walked up to me and said, uh, so are you like working a, a catering party or something tonight afterwards, Scott? So let me just get this out of the way. Hello, my name's Scott, and I'll be your server this evening. I didn't realize that, you know, that's what happens. You don't look in the mirror, I guess. You put the white shirt over the black thing, and it looks like, you know, I got a gig to do tonight afterwards. But I am open. So, you know, I do have some time on my schedule. So if you do need some serving afterwards, let me know. My name is Scott White. I'm part of the pastoral staff here at Lake Avenue Church and uh, the, the team leader here in the warehouse community. And uh, welcome, especially if this is one, one of your first times with us. This is actually one of the first times we've had this built-up stage, and it's real squeaky, which is a real bummer because I like to walk. Um, So if I'm extra squeaky tonight, you'll know why. Hey, this is a good night if you're here for the first time, um, or first time in a while, because we're beginning a new series this weekend. Um, It's a series that, it's being called Songs of Experience. Um, We're tweaking with that a little bit and called Songs of Experience, Singing the Blues. Uh, we're going to spend some time this summer, interrupted by a couple other times, uh, but, but looking at some of the psalms and uh, psalms of experience. Usually when we uh, get started a new series, our senior pastor, Greg Waybright, we usually let him kick that off, but uh, he's actually uh, in the air somewhere, even as we speak, heading to the mid- Midwest. But I want to just read you something that, that he wrote this week that went out to some of the other folks in the Lake Avenue family that, that sets this up well. And then I want to continue, but I want you to hear his voice on these songs of experience and kind of where he was coming from, why God led him to, to this series. And, and if you're, again, if you're new to the warehouse community, we sort of track with what the, the material going on on Saturday night and Sunday mornings around this place. There's four other English language services that go on in total. As much as one third of the Old Testament is comprised of poetry, I'm sure many of you knew that. Common sense tells us that we cannot or should not read a poem the same way we read a story or a letter or a battle report. I believe there is great wisdom in the fact that God inspired so much of his word to us to be written in poetry. The reason is that most of the great poetry in history has sought to express human experience. Historians and sociologists know that every human culture changes. However, poetry teaches us that human experience seems to transcend issues related to history and society. When we read about a person experiencing joy or doubt or grief or relief, we understand, for we too have experienced these realities. It's true. Anybody like poetry? Does anybody still study poetry anymore? Okay, how many out there are English majors? Hold your hand proud, English majors. You know what we are? We are the few, the brave, and largely the unemployed. (laughs) We spend a lot of time looking at poetry. Psalms is the songbook of the people of God. It's basically poetry that was set to music. I envisioned the day when back about a few thousand years ago and Justin's leading worship and they're rocking the temple. Well, maybe not quite rocking the temple in the way that we're thinking about it here. But they would perform these songs. In in this book of wisdom, Psalms, it's recorded this poetry. 
And that's where we spend some time doing. As, as I said, we kind of renamed this Singing the Blues. Any blues fans? We're going to keep doing polls here for a second. A few, a few blues fans? Well, maybe by the time this... Matt, I see that hand way back there. You, you bad bass player, you. Um, a bad in a good way. Um, hopefully by the time this series is done, maybe some of you are going to fall in love with a, a musical form called the blues. What I love about the blues is it comes in great variety. It's, it's, it's acoustic singing the blues right now. Um, comes in, in, in great variety. But, but what, I, what I particularly like about the blues, it's, it's raw and it's honest. It tends to be kind of moody music, whether it's electric blues or whether it's acoustic, but it's raw and it's honest. It, it's, it's like a coin. In the same blues song, you've got two sides. You, you can marry up both joy and sorrow side by side, like, like those masks, the drama masks of, of comedy and tragedy existing side by side. Um, a lot of blues songs are like that. I mean, it just takes you to the pits and it raises you back up, not to manipulate you, just to tell a story. They're just honest. The blues is an honest art form. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Psalms would probably be set to a lot of blues music. So I tried to talk the staff team into re renaming the warehouse for this summer, the Warehouse of Blues. Yeah, that's kind of how it went down when I, when I tried it with them, too. <clears throat> so I don't know if I'll be Jake or Elwood Blues, but we're going to dip in a little bit to the blues tonight. Here's my challenge to you, friends. And I want to start with a challenge because I expect tonight to be bothersome. I expect God to bother us tonight. Darla, you're, you'd think you and I had met this week to talk about your prayer segment. You summarized probably much better than I'm going to. Some thoughts on doubt. But here's my question. Here's my challenge to you. I want you to find yourself in the psalm we're going to study tonight. I want you to find yourself in the psalm that we are going to read tonight. Can you do that? Find yourself. Because, you know, we say here at Warehouse we're on a discovery of faith. Friends, if you're really on a discovery, then it's a journey of exploration. I want you in this psalm tonight to explore and to find yourself. Psalm 73, you were given it when you came in in this lovely little green piece of paper. One side is blank, with the, almost blank with the word doubt, and the other side has the psalm. Yes, it's in a very small font, and yes, it's a little dark out there. But I wanted you to have it in your hand because putting it on screen wasn't going to work real well. And a lot of us don't carry a textbook with us, but there is a Bible in the back if you want to grab one. I encourage your friends, bring a Bible. If God is speaking to you, you, you want to capture that in the margin, what He's saying at that moment, at that time. So I encourage you to bring one week after week. But let's talk about 73, Psalm 73. Allow me to read it to us. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. 
They scoff and they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up these waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Psalm 73 is a story about a man in crisis. The man's name is Asaph. What we know about Asaph is limited, but what we do know about him is he was a worship leader at the temple. His job was to call the people to worship, to lead them in acts of worship. The psalm he has written here is this poetic roller coaster. It takes us on a ride up and down, back and forth. And it's something all of us do. All of us have doubts. We have doubts. And he takes us on his journey of doubt. Because we've all wrestled with it. I don't care if you're a fairly young follower, new follower of Jesus, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, if you're down the street studying for vocational ministry, or maybe even standing on a platform preaching the Word of God on a Sunday evening. We've all had doubts. Asaph has recorded some of his doubts. And friends, being brutally honest and blunt, if you say you haven't had doubts, then I wonder, are you lying or comatose? Because if we're going to have an honest conversation about God, His nature, His purpose, then we really need to be honest and say, sometimes I have doubts. I have doubts. Darla mentioned some things even in her own thoughts on doubts. How do you explain this world and the condition it's in? How do I make sense of, of, of HIV that's devastating Africa? How, how do I make sense of, of flooding in the Midwest of our country just this past week that's wiped out all kinds of 
farms and crops that keep driving up prices all around the world for all sorts of basic food staples. How do do I make sense of, of genocide in Darfur? and governments that just stand by? How how, how do I make sense of sexual slavery in Cambodia? How do I make sense of this? If this is the way God intended things, if this is the way that the God of the Bible intended things, then either we need a new God, or we need a new world, or could it be that maybe we need new perspective? That's the journey Asaph takes us on here in his psalm. This is his story and this is his blues song. Find yourself in his story tonight. This week while I've been preparing, I keep finding myself in his story in a bunch of different times and a bunch of different days. Find yourself in his story tonight. I was talking about doubt with Pastor Waybright earlier this week. And something he said really caught me and I want to read it to you. I want to get it quoted correctly. He said, people say doubt is the opposite of faith. But you really can't doubt something without first believing in it. Doubt only becomes a problem when we try to run from it. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Friends, we have to encourage one another sometimes as followers of Jesus to be honest about our faith and to wrestle and to grapple honestly and frankly. Because because sometimes we, we get the idea that we've just been weakened and we're on shaky ground if we ask those kind of honest questions. Almost as if God can't face them. My experience has been opposite that. When I have seen people wrestle honestly with God, but I have discovered they actually end up being strengthened for the battle. But wrestling honestly, that's the trick. Well, in the 25, 30 minutes we got, I want to invite you into some honest wrestling tonight as a community and individually and to let Asaph be our guide. I want you to look at that sheet of paper in front of you. You'll see it. You'll see four different parts have been bolded out. That's to kind of indicate, if you will, the stanzas. So as the story sort of changes. It's a nicely balanced psalm, as you can see. It fits on the paper quite comfortably. And it's balanced out there. It begins with a simple declaration of truth. And that's important because it will end with a similar declaration of truth. But it quickly moves from this declaration that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to the people of God, to those who are pure in heart. But it quickly gets to this thing that I'm calling an integrity check. Can I be honest as a teacher? Can I be honest as a worship leader with where I am? Because that's what Asaph immediately does in verse 2. He declares honestly that he has doubts and that there's conflict. My feet had almost slipped. He's looking at this in past tense, but he's starting out by saying that I'm weak. I was weak. But but what happened? How did he get here? What caused his brokenness? Maybe you've heard this before. You, You look at a tombstone and there's a birth date and there's a death date. And there's almost always this this dash between the two of them. And real life is not the birth date. And it's not the death date, although those are important. 
Real life is in the dash. Because it's in the dash is where we've lived. Asaph, the way he sets up this poem, is he gives us something at the beginning and something at the end that frames the whole story. But the story is in that dash. What took place for Asaph? What caused this? What, what was the straw that broke his back? Let's look at, at verses 2 through 12. It's, it, it, it's sort of the problem statement. The rest of the psalm is pretty much the solution, if you will. Looking at that first section, see, he's questioning what he believes right off the bat. Where is this loving God? Is what he's saying. Again, remember who this man is. He's the worship leader. He's highly trained. He's been theologically trained for an extended period of time to be trusted to lead the people of God in worship. Okay? That's who we're talking about. Do not forget that. It's a leader within the faith community. And he's basically saying, where is this loving God? Is God who He really claims to be? The problem is, he believes this deeply, but everything he looks and sees about him as he records in these verses doesn't seem to add up to that, does it? It doesn't seem to add up. Look how he sets this up. Look, look how he constructs this. Do you see the pronouns he uses in these, in these verses? Uh, let's go 3 through 12. Look at the pronouns he's using. And like, like all good poetry, it kind of has a rhythm to it. Just hear the drumbeat of the pronoun. They, there. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy. They are free. They are not plagued. Their necklace. They clothe. They're callous. Their minds, etc., etc., etc. It's like this drumbeat. He's making his case. It's about them. They're at fault. They are the problem. And it just goes on and on and on. And what is Asaph doing? just like pushing himself away. He's making distance between he and them. Anybody ever say to you, uh, you know, you really need to own your own stuff. You need to take responsibility for that. At least when we were, you know, younger kids, we've all had that thrown at us. Asaph isn't having anything at this point to do with that, is he? He's doing this. It's them they. He's pushing it all on them. It's the wicked who are prospering. He has nothing to do with it. He's not even going to enter into it. He's just going to stand outside of it and call it out. As a matter of fact, he even calls out God. He calls out God by saying, you know, they're even mocking you. Look at down at verse 11. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? That's mocking God. And he's standing back, this leader of the worship community is standing back and saying, are you paying attention? Hello? If you're real, where are you? If you're at work, where are you? Do you get the depth of this crisis that's going on? What do you do when you look around and everything's crashing and burning? When nothing seems to make sense? And for those of you who have been followers of Jesus for a while, what do you do with your doubt? Many of you know I was in uh, Southeast Asia last August with a number of folks here from Warehouse Community and, and other places. We spent some time with some young girls who had been sold into sexual slavery. They were violated on a daily basis multiple times. Many of these girls were preteen age. And as I shared with you back in October, I, came, I just was really conflicted. 
God, where are you? My God of justice, you tell me in your word, your God of justice, where are you? Why do the wicked prosper? It's the same question 4,000, 3,000 years later I'm asking that Asaph ask. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do these preteen girls suffer? Where are you? Now, did that make me a weak Christian? Did that somehow diminish God that I asked the question? Or was it just honest? Did I lose my faith? If faith is not the opposite of doubt, then I must have been embracing something much deeper. A faith that's driven so deeply that it can actually answer, it can actually handle asking the hard questions whether or not there's an answer. Well, I am thrilled to report that just a couple of weeks ago, some of those girls were here in the United States. And they were testifying against the American man who had, in, who had bought them and imprisoned them in there in Phnom Penh for an extended period of time, an ex-Marine. And he was found guilty because of their testimony. And he will serve multiple life sentences in jail. And I feel like those girls finally received justice. In August, I was crying out, Where is the justice? And in June, our nation, whose whole code of law was based on the Bible and Judeo-Christian ethic, answered the question, where is the justice? And my perspective changed. I saw some things differently. And ultimately, some hope was renewed in a God who is just and will act justly though not on my time schedule. And he might not act justly in the temporal now. And I have to remind myself to be comfortable with that. Justice is a long road. I had my doubts, but God was patient with me and purposeful. My doubt was restored through this, this act of our justice system. But what about Asaph? I wonder what changed the tide for him. Look at the beginning of part two there in verse 13, the beginning of the second part. He begins to wrap up his assessment here of the first part. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. See, he's, he's like a lawyer. He's beginning to wind up his argument here. He's going to throw it down on God. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. He's being thoughtful. He's being reflective. But he's just working up to the change that's about to occur. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. And let me stop there for a minute. Because he's measuring his words and he's measuring them carefully and thoroughly. Because he's got an obligation. He's the worship leader, right? He's the worship leader. He's thinking about his own doubt, but the fact that his doubt will cascade toward others. And he's thinking about his position and where he can share that crisis, which begs a question for us. Who walks with you? Who walks with me through these doubt crisis moments? 
Who's it safe to have the conversation with? Because when he says here in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, he's talking about to anyone and to everyone, I would have betrayed your children, God. Because he knew there were some who could not handle the doubt that he was feeling. The crushing weight, maybe even depression. But he understood his responsibility. That's why it begs the question, who can you speak this doubt to? Where is it safe to speak this doubt? And when do I speak this doubt? Who can you talk to and ask raw questions of? Who can handle your doubts? We say here at Warehouse, we're on a discovery of faith. A discovery of faith. For those of us who studied the European explorers through history, when that first began, they're sailing off in the middle of nowhere, right? They're on a true discovery mission. They don't know where they're headed. They don't know what's out there. And even when they began to learn what was out there, they still weren't sure exactly where they'd end up. And if they'd make it safely, that's a discovery. Within your faith, are you on a discovery of faith or a pleasure cruise? Those guys were not on a pleasure cruise when they were discovering. They were not expecting it to be easy. There were plenty of questions. If we want to truly be on a discovery of faith here in the warehouse community, as followers of Jesus all around the world, then it's going to take us to some places that occasionally are going to be pretty thick with doubt. Pretty filled full of things we don't understand. It's part about growing up and being mature in Christ. But it's going to be a place of doubt, and we need to discover some places and people that we can bring that in the midst of community to share that landscape together. One of the places I'm looking forward to doing that with you guys this summer and with Matt Lucas is going to lead us in, in this study of James. Midweek studies on Thursday nights beginning July 3rd. There's a little commercial, but that's not why I'm doing it. James is a raw book. It asks a lot of us. It begs for us to ask some things of it and each other. If we're on a discovery of faith, let's go together. Let's be a community. Let's find what it is to walk this thing out together. Many years ago, I read a book that God really used for me to help challenge some of my own doubts about many things. I want to read you a little section of it here in a second. I'm sure some of you have read this book. It's called A New Kind of Christian by a pastor by the name of Brian McLaren. Um, it, it's a fictionalized conversation, a dialogue between a couple of people about Christian faith. A guy who thinks he's pretty much on the edge of losing his. And a guy who maybe arguably thinks he has. Um, but, but in the introduction to the book himself, uh, McLaren says some things. I just want to share it with you because this was, a, this was a book that God used in my life to make me more comfortable with being a person who can ask honest questions. Because one of the challenges he, he, he lays forward is, is it possible that doubt brings us to a place where change can occur? That depth can emerge? And if we were not at that place, would it not happen? I'll read you this, just this little bit from his introduction on uh, page 12. Maybe, <clears throat> what if our personal experiences of frustration and doubt are actually surface manifestations of a deeper movement of God's Spirit in other words, what if this experience of frustration that feels so bad and destructive is actually a good thing, a needed thing, 
a constructive thing in God's unfolding adventure. Maybe Martin Luther felt this way in his life as a monk. Maybe when he was told to preach about indulgences or to make room for emissaries from Rome to do so, he thought to himself, I can't take this anymore. Maybe I'll go back to just being a lawyer. His experience then seemed so bad to him. He must have been frightened. I wonder if he asked, am I losing my faith? Am I falling away from God? But Protestants everywhere, I think, would agree that something good was afoot. That August day, McLaren now speaking for himself, that August day, I felt miserable. And I continued to feel miserable for several months. But gradually, although giving up in despair remained tempting, hope started becoming more interesting. Where do we take our doubts? What do we do with our doubts? Will your doubt be a portal or a pothole? Is your doubt like Asaph an opportunity to step into something that's deeper, more challenging, and ultimately, by God's grace, more fulfilling? I mean, as in being built up in Christ. Or will it be a pothole that you will just disappear into? Like the first part of this psalm, 3 through 12, what if he never came out of there and swallowed him alive? You can take doubt and you can make it a portal or you can make it a pothole. Let's continue. Verse 17. What, ha- what changed? Go up 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. That's it. That's what changed. Amidst his own doubts, he still went to the temple. He went to the sanctuary. He went to the church. Now, why he was there, I don't know. Maybe he was there to lead worship in the midst of his doubts. Maybe it was just his turn to, I don't know, change diapers that week at the nursery. But whatever it was, he was there. That was the place that God used. Something changed there. Whether it was obligation, habit, duty, guilt, I don't know. But that's the place where perspective changed. In the sanctuary. Sanctuary. It's a place of refuge. That's what the word means. A place of refuge. It is a place where you are to be safe. It is a place indeed that you can consider holy just as the temple. There's a primacy in worship in this journey, friends, that, that, that if, if, if we as, as, as followers of Jesus in our journey don't make worship a primary act, we have no chance on keeping perspective. And, and friends, if you define worship as what we're doing right now, someone standing in front of you, opening the Word of God and talking about it, then can I disabuse you of that right now? So if you arrive at 640, I'm sorry, you've got about half a worship, worship light. Worship is this experience. It simply means ascribing worth to God. So it's the whole experience that accomplishes that. It's preparation in song. It, it, it's, it's prayer, whether it's directed corporately or whether it's individual reflection. It's times of contemplation. Oh yeah, it's also an opening scripture. But, but worship is this full experience. When he said he found himself in the temple, when he entered the sanctuary of God, it doesn't say he was there to hear the word of God. It doesn't tell us anything. We just know he was there. He was in the presence of God. And that's what changed things. He was in the presence of God. 
Well, this is Asaph's description of the resolution, which is pretty much the rest of this poem, this song of the blues. And here's how I want to break it down. What did he resolve? What, what, did he, what kind of solution did he find here? It's sort of a three-legged stool, and we're going to call the seat of the stool perspective. Well, let's take a look at the three legs and where they lead us and what they might say to us. Verse 18, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, continuing on, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Whoa. That's serious. You know, a lot of people today don't like to talk much about heaven and hell. Heaven, maybe. But hell? Friends, I don't know what you think about that term or what that term means to you. But the fact is, this is a subject that the Bible talks a fair amount about. Heaven and hell. That's what Asaph is talking about here. The first leg of his stool is perspective on human destiny. Not temporal events, not today, but human destiny, ultimate destiny, ultimate justice. Because you know, friends, without ultimate justice, how can there ever be ultimate goodness? They're opposites. You can't have ultimate goodness if there is not ultimate justice. For indeed, a God who lacks injustice is not a good God. And that is not the God who makes Himself known in Scripture. He is a good God. And thus, He's a just God. Let's continue on to the second leg of this stool. The first one, perspective on human destiny. The second one is perspective on self. Because, you know, worship changes how we look at ourselves. Not just how we look at God, but, but subsequently becomes a mirror that helps us look at ourselves. You know, many of us are familiar with the famous Isaiah 6 passage and how that rocked Isaiah's world. But, but look at this section now, uh, from 21 through 26. You know what comes back? That drumbeat. The they-them thing. But look how it's changed. The pronouns have become me and I and, and my. 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless ignorant, I was a brute beast before you, etc., 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 in the sanctuary, in his faith community, he rediscovered his faith was real because he discovered his God was real. And in so doing, the perspective began to change pretty rapidly because no longer was it about distancing himself from all these things. Now he was entering into these things because he saw himself in the midst of it. Do you understand the profound shift that is? He no longer could not be connected. He could no longer be distant he was in this world. He was a part of this world just as his God is in and a part of this world. That faith, that real experience, that seeing himself clearly is about the faith that's implanted in our soul by God. Can't be changed. It's there. It's deep. He experienced that in his faith community. In the end, 25 through almost all of 28, it's about the third leg of the stool, and that's about real values Who's defining here for Asaph what it is that should be his worldview? Because when it begins in the first part, what's it all about? How come the wicked are prospering so much? They don't seem to have any problems, God. I know you. I'm keeping the rules as best as I can. I, you know, I lead people in worship, yada, yada, yada. And how come they're coming out? And how come I feel like I'm suffering? And how come my people are suffering? And, and how come they, they aren't? 
His worldview has been changed because his perspective has grown. In the sanctuary, in his faith community, he rediscovers who gets to define what is good, and good is God, and God is good, and that's where the definition comes from. And so no longer does he distance himself, but now he can walk closer and closer to some hard truth. And then look at the final declaration at the end there in verse 28b, because he ends with this. I will tell of all your deeds. That's a shift, huh? See how bookends the first bit? He declares that God has deeds to be told. Our God is a God of initiative. He doesn't sit back and wait for us. He takes the initiative. Jesus says to His disciples, as the Father has sent Me, there's the initiative thing, so I send you, the cascading out of the initiative. Why? To tell the story of Jesus. To declare the deeds. As Asaph said, to tell the story of a good God, a just God, at work in this world. This is sort of Asaph's version of the Great Commission right here. I will tell of your deeds that you might be worshipped by all the people of the earth. The great theme of Scripture, that God would be known and recognized throughout the earth. He's moved from doubt to affirmation, right, in his faith. But it's all about this perspective thing. That's what did it. It gave his faith room to both see clearly and also comfort enough that he could doubt. Think about this, friends. Some people are really critical of the Bible. If you were trying to create a book to advertise your religion, would you include stories of doubt? I mean, that just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Do you think that maybe God really is very comfortable with our doubt? That indeed He's not threatened at all by our doubt? It's what we do with our doubt. That's the upshot. Asaph took his doubt to the family of God and there his perspective changed. Well, did you find yourself in the psalm? Did you find the passage that was yours? Did you, did you find your story, your, your, your cry out, your complaint, your doubting? Did you find yourself in the story? Suppose you got to write this psalm. How would you have written this psalm? What would you have said? What would you want someone to read of your own time of doubt? Your own story and period of doubt. What would you want someone to read about that? Well, I'm going to suggest some of us have some psalm writing to do tonight. Here in your community, in this place, in this house of worship. Because we've got some questions related to our perspective. On the other side of that green sheet is the word doubt. What I want you to do is take that, take that lovely green sheet. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And I'm going to put some questions up here on the screen magically. There they are. And I want to encourage you to own one of these questions. Express your honest doubts and struggles and end it by declaring a perspective-changing truth that you know about God like Asaph does in this psalm. Or express your honest question and write a prayer asking God for renewed perspective like Asaph needed. Or make observations like Asaph regarding what you see going on in the world and ask God to make Himself known to you. Ask Him to show you that He's loving and just. I don't take it for granted that that's where all of us are coming from. As the team comes up and 
plays a little blues for us in the background. Here's what I want you to do. For those of you, and then you, I'm not compelling you. If you need to do this, you do it. For, for the length of this series, we're going to have a psalm wall in the back and a chance to mount your psalm or response to a psalm up there. So as these guys play for four or five minutes, whatever, I want to encourage you. If you've got a psalm to write and you want to post it, just to get it up on the board and say, God, yeah, deal with this. Help me think through this. Um, to do that, if you want to take it home, whatever you want to do, you can slip out of your row whenever you're ready because they're just going to be up here playing. Some of you have come here. I'm utterly convinced. I became more convinced of it the more I studied this week. But some of you are coming here with deep doubts about where you are in your faith and what you believe about God. It would be nothing short of obscene if we didn't offer to pray for you in the midst of that doubt tonight. So some of the warehouse ministry team is going to be available back there in the back of the room, sort of back by the cross area to pray for you. Um, They aren't going to pray anything other than, God, help me in my unbelief. And pray blessing through your journey. I'll be up front if you want to come up and, and be prayed for. But take the next five minutes. Contemplate one of these questions. If you've got a psalm to write, write the psalm. Slap it up. If you want to be prayed for in the midst of your journey, go to the back or come forward. And then after a little bit, the team's going to come up and lead us in a couple worship songs of response. You continue doing whatever you need to do. If you can need to keep writing, you keep writing. If you need to be prayed for, you go get prayed for. If you just want to sit quietly, you sit quietly. If you want to stand and sing, you stand and sing. You do what you need to do in response. When Asaph came in the temple... He responded to God. We want you to respond to God.